This is Plant-Based Briefing, Does Caffeine Have a Place in a Whole Food Plant-Based Diet? by Nelson Huber-Disla at nutritionstudies.org. And I'm your host, Marian Erickson. This is the Plant-Based Podcast where I curate, get permission, and narrate a variety of articles on plant-based and vegan living. I'm honored to have permission to share articles from the T. Colin Campbell Center for Nutrition Studies at nutritionstudies.org. Dr. Campbell is one of the founders of the modern nutrition movement, the healthy whole food plant-based movement. So now let's get to today's plant-based briefing. Does Caffeine Have a Place in a Whole Food Plant-Based Diet? by Nelson Huber-Disla at nutritionstudies.org. Caffeine is the most widely consumed psychoactive substance worldwide. It is a stimulant that operates on the same parts of the brain as cocaine, though not in the same way or to the same degree. Distilled to its purest form, the white, bitter powder even resembles cocaine, which might be why some drug distributors have reportedly cut their cocaine with caffeine. Not only does this save the money, but it also increases their profits because cocaine mixed with caffeine is more addictive than straight cocaine. But that's pretty much where the comparison ends. Although people often report withdrawal symptoms and a cycle of dependency can develop, caffeine is not, strictly speaking, dangerous. At least not directly. It's possible to overdose on caffeine, but very unlikely to happen from drinking common sources, especially brewed coffee or tea. It would take an extreme measurement error to overdose, as in a case of a couple years ago when a personal trainer in Wales accidentally consumed the equivalent of 200 cups of coffee. But what about a cup or two of coffee in the morning, an afternoon chai latte, or even the occasional energy drink? What effects do these have on your health? Should they be avoided altogether? A brief natural history. More than 60 species of known plants contain caffeine, with coffee, tea, and cocoa being the most common sources. In species of coffee and citrus, caffeine naturally occurring in the plant's nectar enhances pollinators' memory of reward, thereby increasing the likelihood of reproductive success. It can also serve as a defense mechanism against herbivorous animals. Humans and their evolutionary ancestors have been interacting with caffeine-producing plants for more than 100,000 years, perhaps much longer. Anthropologists speculate that the prehistoric Homo erectus species discovered tea in the wild forests of modern-day Yunnan province, southwest China. Once these prehistoric humans learned the skills of fire-building, they gained warmth and protection from the elements, and soon they acquired the ability to cook meat and boil water. Most likely along the way, they experimented with adding tea leaves and other forest parks and leaves to the boiling water, which was stewed into various strong, bitter, and invigorating concoctions. By the time of the Shang Dynasty, 766 to 1050 BC, tea was being consumed in Yunnan province for its medicinal properties. By comparison, coffee drinking is a much newer discovery, dating to the late 15th century and early 16th century in Constantinople, Mecca, and Cairo. There's evidence of the fruit being eaten in Ethiopia earlier than that, but we have no idea who decided to take the seed of the fruit, roast it, grind it into a powder, steep that powder in hot water, and drink the resulting concoction. Similarly, the caffeine-containing kola nut has been consumed for many centuries in West African cultures, as has yerba mate in South America. Today, as many as 85% of Americans consume caffeine daily, most frequently from coffee, but also soda and tea. Worldwide, 90% of adults consume caffeine. Are there benefits of caffeine ingestion? So, we know caffeine is a plant-based substance, but does it have a place in a whole food plant-based diet? Many people will tell you it's healthy, and the evidence to support that view is not insignificant. A meta-analysis of cohort studies on coffee consumption found it may reduce the total cancer incidence, and it also has an inverse association with some types of cancers. 
Likewise, many studies over the past several decades have shown positive effects of drinking caffeinated tea, especially green tea, which has anti-carcinogenic, anti-inflammatory, antimicrobial, and antioxidant properties, and benefits in cardiovascular disease and oral health. In a literature review published in Nutrition more than 10 years ago, Dr. Michael Glade described caffeine as more than just a stimulant and advocated for moving beyond the stigma associated with caffeine by the medical community. With more than 100 references, the article describes caffeine's numerous benefits for physical, cognitive, and mental health, everything from quicker reactions to enhanced neuromuscular coordination to decreased perceived effort. This final benefit, decreased perceived effort, explains why caffeine is so widely used by elite athletes in every sport. So significant are the ergogenic or performance-enhancing effects of caffeine that from 1984 to 2004, it was on the banned substances list. But we should beware of exaggerating the benefits of individual nutrients, foods, or beverages. It's important to remember that broad dietary lifestyle habits play a much greater role in determining health outcomes than any single item or nutritional component. With caffeine, we need to consider how we are consuming it. There are significant differences between an 8-ounce cup of green tea, a coffee prepared with milk and chocolate syrup, and a jumbo-sized soda. That an energy drink can temporarily enhance coordination and quicken reaction times does not make it a healthy choice. As a general rule, if we're going to consume caffeinated products, they are likely to be the healthiest when consumed as close as possible to the natural state of the whole plant and with as few adulterants as possible. Other considerations. In addition to considering the source of the caffeine and the additional products we consume with it, there are a few other well-known concerns to be mindful of, especially when consuming larger doses of caffeine. Anxiety and nervousness are common side effects matched by physical symptoms of jitteriness and rapid breathing. Caffeine can also be habit-forming, and cessation can produce numerous withdrawal symptoms, some of which have been reported in the medical literature going back almost 200 years. Headache, fatigue, decreased energy or activeness, decreased alertness, drowsiness, decreased contentedness, depressed mood, difficulty concentrating, irritability, and foggy or not clear-headed. In addition, flu-like symptoms, nausea, vomiting, and muscle pain and stiffness. You'll likely notice that many of these withdrawal symptoms are directly opposite the purported benefits of caffeine consumption. Additionally, caffeine can impair sleep quality or quantity, particularly in more sensitive individuals. In a review of epidemiological studies and randomized controlled trials, researchers found that caffeine increased sleep latency, the time it takes for a person to fall asleep, reduced total time and efficiency of sleep, negatively impacted perceptions of sleep quality, and reduced slow-wave sleep while increasing wakefulness and arousal. They point out that metabolic and genetic factors might affect individual responses. Nevertheless, if you're having trouble sleeping, you might want to reconsider your relationship with caffeine. Even if you don't struggle to fall asleep, caffeine may be negatively affecting the quality of your sleep, and that's a major concern for your overall health. Should you consume caffeine? There isn't an easy answer to this question. As with other substances, our assessment of the associated risks and benefits will largely depend on personal factors, including your broader health goals and the current quantity and quality of your sleep. It's also important to remember that nothing we consume is isolated, and the interactions between these substances can produce surprising effects, some of which may be adverse. Caffeine can interact with many prescription medications, for instance, including antidepressant agents, antipsychotic agents, anti-manic agents, anti-anxiety agents, and sedative agents. Researchers have observed an interaction between caffeine and some birth control medications, and pregnant women are advised to avoid caffeine intake altogether. If you do choose to consume caffeine, how much is too much? 
According to the Food and Drug Administration, as much as 400 milligrams a day is safe for adults. That's about four eight-ounce cups of brewed coffee. Children are advised to avoid caffeine entirely, and adolescents are advised to limit it to no more than 100 milligrams a day. You just listened to Does Caffeine Have a Place in a Whole Food Plant-Based Diet? by Nelson Huber Disla at nutritionstudies.org. And I'm your host, Marian Erickson. And I haven't done any previous episodes about coffee or caffeine. I know Brigitte Jam at Vegan Family Kitchen has written a blog that I have on my list. I should actually get that one read. I've seen one recently from Nutrition Facts. I know there's tons of studies out there. Personal anecdote, we have two daughters and when our first daughter was three years old, we were pregnant and expecting a son. His name was Joseph. He was stillborn though at just under six pounds. Totally healthy pregnancy the first time around, totally healthy pregnancy the second time around until the tragedy. First time around, I completely cut out coffee. And second time around, I cut out caffeinated coffee, but still drank my same quantities of my soy lattes and things with decaf. As some of you may be able to imagine, Joseph's death turned our world upside down. But through my grieving process, I like to research things and I was trying to find an answer, trying to find a reason. He was still born. It was an umbilical cord accident. It just kinked like a garden hose would kink and the water gets cut off. But I wanted to find out what I did wrong, what I did to cause this. But of course, logically, I know it might not have been anything I did, but I did find an association, different studies talking about caffeine and even decaffeinated coffee increasing risks of miscarriages and stillbirths and whatnot, especially with male fetuses. I just checked right now and there's conflicting information all over the place. I'm not going to do a big research project on it. But for me, I felt that that was something I did that possibly brought harm. So when I got pregnant again with our now teenage daughter, I was sure to not have one drop of even decaf coffee. It's anecdotal for what it's worth. I drink coffee now and I'm actually looking to cut back again. As Michael Greger says, if you're drinking coffee, you're having less room for the good stuff like green tea. So the way I'm cutting back, I did it a few years ago to go to a yoga retreat and it was so easy. I basically just took two weeks and I cut back bit by bit every day, which was so pleasant. Not one issue compared to with my first two pregnancies. I just stopped and I had about three days of horrible withdrawal headaches and irritability. It was just awful. So knowing that you can just taper off, ooh, so nice. Anyway, a lot more personal stuff there than anybody probably wants. But please share this episode with anyone who might benefit and thanks for listening.